Hello, friends, and welcome to A Better Story Podcast. It's not every day you get to sit down with your favorite theologian, but today is that day for me. We are talking to Catherine Keller. If you're in the process of trading out some of your old pieces of faith for new ones, then you are going to love Catherine's work. It is broad. It covers everything from process theology to mysticism to the environment to justice to science and physics. So I think you're going to love this conversation. She gives us a lot of tools, and we sort of walk around some of the big themes of her work in a way that I think will be really helpful for you all, and it was really helpful for me. So make sure to check out one of Catherine's many books. On the Mystery is probably the best place to start, as she will mention at the end of the episode. And with that, enjoy the conversation with Catherine Keller. So let me start with uh, a confession and a compliment sort of melded into one, I hope. I think you, more than any other guest that I've had on, has such a broad scope of work, both in number but in topic, in terms of how much you've written about, the ideas you've explored. And the confession is that that was um, incredibly intimidating, uh, if I'm being honest, just because there was so much that we could explore. And I thought to myself, how in the world um, are we going to actually dive into something with any sort of depth? And then I realized I don't know that we have to, um, which um, <laughs> let me let me back into that because uh, I could use some explaining. When I try to tell people what I'm trying to do with a podcast, um, it would I would probably best say it as giving people different tools for their faith journey. Uh, folks who have mm-hmm. maybe been let down by the tools they were given, yeah. uh, and in that sense, the breadth of your work provides um, so many tools for folks to pick up and play with and explore and see if they're helpful and useful. Um, So all that to say, I would love to just sort of like walk around your toolkit, so to speak, uh, and have you pick one up and show it to us and kind of move through some of the big ideas of your work, if that sounds all right with you. It sounds really fun. Maybe I'd rather think of it as a sandbox. Absolutely. (laughs) With toy-like tools around there, a nice summer image. But yeah, Sam, that sounds... That sounds great. I, I mean, it, it is the case that I've been writing for uh, decades now. I can't yet quite say half a century, but that doesn't that doesn't seem terribly far away. So uh, I myself get a little uh, out of focus with you know some of the some of the some of the detail of, of the past work. What I hope is that it tends to recapitulate itself in new forms, and so it's not it's not trying to maintain a, a kind of linear continuity, like I had a clear agenda from the moment I started my dissertation, you know, an outline for my life's work, and have been marching steadfastly and triumphantly through those those phases. Uh, but I do think there's a kind of of uh, of uh, spiraling that goes on. So I think I'm often repeating what I've done, but from, from I, I think, uh, strangely different angles that are fresh to me, uh, different inquiries. So I, I hope there's at least some, some continuity, but not too much. But I'm just really open yeah. to your own. Absolutely, yeah. Questions. And that linear process would seem a little counterintuitive to the very ideas you're exploring. So... Um, which starts with maybe the first kind of big idea or um, uh, tool to play with in the sandbox. And that's the idea of process, uh, which you articulate in a lot of different ways, but two that I find really compelling one as it relates to God and then one as it relates to faith itself and the actual faith journey. Can you start by just sort of elaborating about process and the faith journey? And then maybe we'll get to God after that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, but I can't say much about the faith journey without saying a little bit about process itself as really um, the journey of the universe. And uh, that's the that's the theological background that I was blessed to encounter quite young in my own journey, actually, in seminary called process theology, which uh, some of you all have have encountered in some form or another. Uh, but process theology is different than a lot of, of theologies, a lot of Protestant theologies perhaps in particular, even though it's very Protestant, uh, in that it really, it really takes the, the vantage point of the creation into account. 
at every step of the way. Uh, so who I am and who you are are not separable uh, from each other and therefore each other's processes. That's kind of obvious. We're affecting each other right now. And in process thought, that means we're actually affecting who each other is becoming. <laughs> I am not quite the same person, not exactly as I was when we started this conversation. And that will keep changing uh, in hopefully good ways, but there's no guarantee and vice versa. Uh, but that not only are we participating in each other, as Paul says of the community, members one of another in the body of Christ, not just members of the body of Christ, but in Romans, his paraphrases, members one of another. So we're that, but it's the, it is also uh, participation in the body of the creation itself. Uh, so first of all, in our own material bodies, which are living and, and breathing animal organisms, and then in the atmosphere, the air, the strange inorganic feeling of the view out my window uh, to some Manhattan skyscrapers. Uh, but above that, that beautiful blue, uh, and over on the other side, some river, uh, always the air, the breathing, the breath, the oxygen, the ruach. So I went that, that whole set of cosmic processes, of creation process, always to be in our head when we think of process. So our faith journey is never just human. Uh, and it's never just me and my God, because me and my God are, at least if we're talking my God, uh, profoundly involved in the whole process of the universe, and in our case, that means of, of the Earth, and in this historical moment, uh, that's poignant, uh, verging on, uh, on, on apocalyptically tragic, that Earth-embeddedness. So our faith journey as a process is a way of talking about just continuously adventurous, risky unfolding. Uh, there's not just one moment where I'm called or just one moment where I'm saved. There are big moments like that where I feel, hear, discern the call, the divine lure, as Whitehead puts it in process theological terms. God is, God is this luring of us calling, inviting, there are moments where we actually become conscious of that and perhaps respond affirmatively, you know, like, yes, I'm in. Uh, but it doesn't stop there. The calling doesn't stop there. It continues. And that would be true of what we call salvation as well. And that I'm, I'm a real Methodist a real Wesleyan, that there's not just justification, uh, there's also sanctification. That is the continual process that needs, needs our affirmation, it needs our responsibility, it needs our agency and support. God needs us to take actively part in our faith journey. Yeah, and that um, stands in a pretty stark contrast, I think, in a good way to maybe what some people were handed, myself included, in the sense that the faith journey, there's a market end goal where it's heaven or salvation, or you could put a lot of different language on what people say around that. Um, but in your writing and in your, uh, your your work, you would kind of push back against that and say there's not an end goal, but that doesn't make it less meaningful. Um, can you talk about that for a second? Yes, that's an interesting way of putting that, putting the whole discussion, not an end goal. Um, you know, I think that I don't want to eliminate some set of goals and even ends in the sense of purposes. I'm haunted these days by a verse from uh, T.S. Eliot, The Four Quartets, his very Christian uh, poem, uh, one of the great poems of the English language, that what, what, what has been and what might have been point to one end, which is always present. What has been and what might have been point to one end, which is always present. You know, the might have been is really the poignant aspect of our lives, and it's the deep side of all tragedies. It's the life that could have been, the messianic age that could have been, uh, 
the the love we could have had, all that the, the might have been, but that the might have been and the and and what actually has historically factually happened point to an end, but it's a present end, and that's that that's that divine lure always always calling us to a new purposefulness, not contradicting old purposes, but unfolding them, altering them with the circumstances. So I, I don't want to think about end in terms of one final end of history. There's no such thing in the Bible. There's no end of the world in the Bible. It's a, late, it's a post-biblical idea. I'm working on the second book on the apocalypse right now. I'm on, on this. Uh, uh, there are tremendous catastrophes that have happened and that will happen, but they don't add up to the end. Uh, there are dramatic culminations of heaven and earth. Yeah. So yes, there's a purposefulness that's luring us always that we partially realize, but then there, there are always more ends, even if they are well beyond our own individual lives. Yeah. I think that's what makes um, process theology and just this this relational aspect or relational viewpoint compelling is because it's big and it's uh, consistently or should consistently be relevant to what's happening in the world. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. clinging to some past truth or trying to get back to something or looking too far forward to something that may or may not happen, right. uh, which I deeply appreciate. You've kind of articulated around this a little bit. And listeners heard um, our friend Trip Fuller a few weeks ago explain uh, his take on process and God. Um, but I wonder if you could elaborate a little more specifically about um, how you see God in process, which is a gigantic question. I know. <laughs> you think? Uh, and, of course, the seeing of that which is infinitely invisible is always tricky. So I've, I've been increasingly tuned uh, in in my theological life to the old mystical tradition of Christianity uh, called negative theology or apophatic theology is technical language, but the theology of, of unknowing. So I increasingly wanted to, to remain conscious of how unconscious uh, I am. And we all are of what God means uh, to know how much we cannot know my, my vision or my view of God is of something really profoundly invisible, uh, not captured in our metaphors, not even our really good ones like process theology. But if we understand that we're working with rough metaphors, some of them maybe really inspired metaphors, uh, ancient inspirations and fresh ones, it doesn't make them absolute truths, uh, because by the time we get conscious of this intuition stirring in us, this inspiration, this inspiriting, uh, we've already subjected it to our categories, that of our culture, our language, our own personal uh, peculiarities. Uh, and so the, the view of God I have always needs to go through that, that relativizing and say, yeah, but the metaphors that really keep speaking to me of God uh, are, of, as you've indicated, a God who is also in process. That is, a God who is in the process with us. Uh, that doesn't begin to exhaust what God would mean if God is, at the very least, uh, the infinite, the, the, the unending, the not, uh, not finite, uh, also not finished. <laughs> That's the other way of, of translating infini, the infinite, unfinished, that God is also unfolding. That doesn't mean God is not perfect, but it means that perfection isn't about closure. Perfection isn't inability to grow. Perfection does not mean, if you're, the more perfect you are, does that mean the more, the more unable you are to learn or to grow or to experience new things? So the most perfect people we know in the world are the ones who are absolutely stuck? Yeah, give me a break. The most amazing, wise, old people, and as a 65-year-old, I'm talking about much older people, so <laughs> like my amazing advisor, John Pog, who's 20 years older than I am, 
uh, still going strong. No, excuse me, he's almost 30 years. Oh, yes, what a relief. Yes, <laughs> he's almost, almost 95. Makes me feel very young. But I have a lot of these old people in mind. I'll be seeing Jürgen Moltmann again soon, who 30 years older as well, just about. They are the people who are always continuing to grow. They're still curious. Uh, they're still open. They're not changing their mind on their big questions. They're not erratically growing. They're growing wisely. They're growing in wisdom, not because they lack it. And, and, and they, for me, are, are good, you know, anthropomorphic metaphors for God if we, if we want anthropomorphic images. It's not going to be, for me, about tyrants and, and kings or, and you know, patriarchal fathers. It's going to be examples of women and men who I have had the privilege of knowing uh, who, until the very last, just continue to uh, take part in, in the loving adventure of life. So yeah. I hope that's a bit of a parable for my sense of God, who's calling us into the adventure with God, not, not just you know, triggering us and abandoning us, but also never, never the puppet master, never controlling us. How boring that would be for God and how morally evil uh, that would mean God is the one responsible for all of the slaughters and holocausts of history. That's, I think on a, a really basic level, what you articulate is really intuitive, um, which is why it resonates with a lot of folks. I'm sure you found there is still a significant uh, amount of folks within Christian, the Christian realm, uh, broadly speaking, that uh, for one reason or another push back very strongly against process theology. Oh. Uh, or God in process. Um, I wonder a couple different ways. I go back and forth on this, so I'd love your your take. I've heard you talk about, and I've thought myself, um, that some of that pushback is not wanting the responsibility that this understanding of God puts on us as creatures in a world. Then the other part of it, where I have maybe a little more sympathy, is um, in a similar vein, I think it also induces more anxiety or refuses to leap relieve people's anxiety uh, when that big classical uh, theism sort of God uh, gives us this sort of like, whether it's real or not, assurance that everything's going to be okay because it's a big sort of paternalistic figure. Yeah, why do you think folks push back against process like that? Well, I think you're already nailing it, Sam. And I think there are, there are a lot of interesting reasons to get into, but I think really key is the way that, that process thought deconstructs classical omnipotence, the notion of the all-controlling God, the notion of the God uh, without whose will nothing happens as it happens. So it can say directly, as Calvin did at key points, that not, not even the torque of a, of a snowflake falling happens without God's having eternally willed it to happen, just like that forever. As the, then the, 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 the horrible doctrine, as he, he himself nicknamed it, of double predestination. It means God has planned for some uh, to deserve eternal down, damnation and to get it. That's God's doing. So what a, what a strange game uh, of universe that God is playing. Uh, but there are, uh, there are much more gracious, milder forms of, of understanding in classical omnipotence that allow certain leeway for, for human responsibility and freedom. You know, it's hard not to, given the Bible is like chock full of calls to, to repent, to take responsibility, to, and, and not just personally in your relationship to God, but, but socially, to do justice, to care for the widow and the orphan, uh, etc. <laughs> for the animals. Uh, of course, there's a lot of stress about losing a notion of God in control because it might mean that life is out of control. And, you know, for pe people who are anxious in their worlds and their lives, and so many people have good reason to be, it, it can be devastating to think that, that God isn't going to pretty soon you know, step in and fix all this mess. God's going to make it right, hopefully in our lifetimes. 
that you know we'll, we'll each get what we deserve, and and I deserve good things, um, don't we all? But if not, at least for my my eternal reward, which will make it all okay. And I don't mean to take away from any uh, metaphors of of infinite life in which we participate in some mysterious way beyond uh, death. I, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't doubt that there's something like that. But it's it's this it's what you say it's the loss of it's the loss of any uh, any all controlling agent that just seems to leave us leave us on our own. So it, we lose a sense of the absolute sovereignty of a very regal God and and then we're just like stuck in this mess. Yeah. Having to work it out with not much hope of of, of doing so. Yep, I think that um, when people talk about trust in God, they often talk about that they have in mind that um, sort of big omnipotent God. But you give a different definition or a different idea of trust and you flesh it out in a different way, which I think may help people kind of wrap their mind around some of the things we're talking about. Um, What do you mean when you're talking about trust in God? What I'm clearly not meaning is trust that God is going to take care of our problems for us, that God is going to fix, uh, you know, my illness, or fix my broken romance, or fix our broken ecosystem. God, uh, so far, has given us no evidence of these fixes. Sometimes repair goes on in the world, and sometimes it's quite mysterious and happens very quickly. And, And suddenly, I mean, my lifetime, my experience is the amazing fix of patriarchy uh, in, in just the difference between what my mother's options were and what mine are. It's almost unfathomable. That doesn't mean that I think patriarchy has been taken. It doesn't mean it's all fixed. And it doesn't mean God intervened to do it. It does mean that some critical mass of humans tuned in to the lure, tuned in to a deep, deep calling in themselves. Often they felt it as conscience Luther was glad to call the voice of God the voice of conscience as well in his early writing. Uh, so this sense of heeding the call, sometimes you have whole collectives do it, and amazing, amazing transformations happen. I trust that those huge transformations can happen and can happen again and again in spite of very, uh, very discouraging signs. That's why I'm working on the apocalypse, and I want people to remember what it really means. The word doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean disaster. The word apocalypse is to reveal. It's to disclose, not to close down. So I, I trust in the opening, and I, in the, I trust in the opening in every moment, and that there is, there is a voice calling there, which most of us can't hear most of the time. But there is that calling, that still small voice that is offering wisdom, sometimes wild wisdom, like the wisdom of, of, of trees and of squirrels, <laughs> their amazing interaction. Uh, but that wisdom uh, has, to be, has to be received. I trust that the divine wisdom is there for us. And more than that, I share with all of process theology, a sense that not only does God keep calling us, offering a possibility, an actual possibility for this moment that we can do something with, even if it's a very limited possibility, uh, but there's a possibility that is a kind of grace for every moment, even if it's a moment under torture and and death. There's a grace and a, a calling there that I trust we can embrace, but I also trust that we are embraced, that there's a kind of of enfolding love that greets all of us uh, wherever we are after we become what we are in any given moment. And that's process theology, that God takes whatever we are into God's self. That's God's becoming. We come into God. Uh, but that's not our conscious selves anymore. That's God's experience of the world, all of it. 
and we're integrated into that, we need to go on in our particular lives. Uh, but knowing that, that God is in some way lovingly embracing it all, uh, even, the, even the demonic stuff, not approving of it, not blessing the demons, uh, not blessing the, the evils of our political and economic system at this time, <laughs> not affirming that, but affirming <laughs> that uh, there's, there's that which might yet be. Yeah, that's such a beautiful conception of God and life and the world. And it, it holds two things that I often think of as contradictory but the you embody really well. And I think that's a sense, um, an earnest sense of responsibility to the world uh, and to the universe. And then at the same time, the sense of playfulness, um, because there's just this sort of posture of exploration uh, towards the world. Can you talk about how you hold those two things together and where that comes from, that playfulness and that sort of um, earnest responsibility? <laughs> well, I love the question. Um, so it's a cool observation to think about how there might be a playfulness weaving its way through the sense of responsibility that we feel. I think it's this. I think the playfulness is, 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 the, is the creative edge of reality, you know, of the creation unfolding. Creation is about creativity. That's what it is. It's creation is creativity materializing. And creativity is all about the play of new possibilities. Otherwise, it's not creativity. It's just some, <clears throat> some merely predictable order. And thank God, really, thank God, even physics has been getting beyond that kind of determinism for the hundred years of, of, of quantum theory, <laughs> understanding there's indeterminacy and play in the relatedness of all things. So our playfulness is, is an expression of that cosmic creativity isn't it? That God is luring forth in ever more complicated forms because it seems that there's something to the evolutionary process. There's a tendency for things to get more complex and in that way to have more options, more chance for playfulness, uh, and more chance for destructiveness as well. The more complex things get, the more play there can be, the more risk, the more adventure, the more there can be the really uh, shadowy side of the adventure, you know, kind of the, the warrior side of it. Uh, and, and that we know all too well, the warrior's adventure. So if we can keep working to distinguish the loving, just playfulness from an irresponsible kind of adventure, uh, I think we're onto something. The playfulness is how we open up possibilities. In my life, there was, uh, there was a mother who was very talented as an artist and and, and a literary person, but had no chance for an education or for support or even for husbands who could in any way uh, support her. So there was a lot of tragedy in our life. But she, she kept that playful edge somehow. Uh, and, and that's a great gift to me. There was always a creativity in her perspective, even though uh, there was great tragedy in the way the life was actually unfolding. A terrible sense of of what what might have been but wasn't um, but I think that I have inherited a pretty fierce sense of of that um, play, playfulness no matter what and it's not about making light it's about remaining open to to what's possible no matter what and you know it, it's that no matter whatness that gives it the heavy edge of, of responsibility where we're open to, to all that's in jeopardy, uh, for for all that matters for this whole, this whole planetary, human experiment that we call civilization, <laughs> in its embeddedness, in all the other kinds of social life that are not human, and uh, our civilization has been rich, amazing, genius with its playfulness and creativity, uh, but the shadow side. Has, has often triumphed, and it seems in danger of it again. But we can't shut down in, in fear, in numbness, in despair, in which case we shut down our playfulness, 
and that doesn't just shut down our pleasure, that shuts down our openness to the divine call. Yeah, and I think when we shut down that playfulness and then that openness to the divine call, we end up seeing a, a lack of compelling counter-narrative or uh, a compelling alternative to sort of the destructive forces that we end yeah. up seeing uh, in positions okay. of power right now. Um, to kind of hit on some things that you have been talking around a little bit, uh, your work centers quite a bit on um, a deep appreciation for the environment and care for the world that we are in and a part of. And I found one thing you said uh, particularly interesting and helpful, probably just because it resonated with my own background a little bit. And forgive me, I don't remember exactly where I read it. Uh, but you at one point wrote about how um, when we think about the world and creation, this sort of creation care movements of this evangelical movement isn't quite robust enough to actually get us uh, to where we need to be in terms of care for the environment. Um, and you kind of flesh out uh, a richer uh, environmental theology. Can you talk about um, those two things? I'm not trying to pick a fight with the creation care movement uh, by any means, but uh, can you talk about your theology of environment and how that may contrast to what um, some folks like myself have been handed? Yeah, 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 that's a great line of questioning, Sam. So I think that in earlier writing of mine, I was more prone to tussle uh, with evangelical positions, you know, want to correct for all of that, you know, patriarchal language and all of that anthropocentrism, sort of human-centeredness of, of the dominion and all. Uh, I, I, I might have outgrown that particular oppositionalism. Uh, that is, I'm, I'm just delighted with evangelicals who are embracing creation care. I have no criticism of their doing that and of the creation care that then they're exercising. I just want to be first and foremost in solidarity. Now, there are a lot of us who aren't coming out of an evangelical background or who are and have needed to push on uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, and, and we come at creation care Differently, I like the metaphor of care for creation, uh, but the danger then that we see when we are coming from another angle is that there can be too strong a stress on human stewardship as a way of trying to interpret uh, our dominion, uh, and that strong stress on human stewardship can keep feeding back into the sense that we are because we're in the image of God, the only creatures that God really cares about. Uh, and that can, that can sabotage creation care, because then we don't really uh, heed uh, the other creatures in their need uh, and in their, in their forms of, of knowing, of giftedness, of what Genesis 1 so repeatedly and firmly calls goodness. I mean, oh my goodness, God is saying, whoo, good, whoo, good. Uh, with an element of delight, surprise at the playfulness with which the creation is unfolding in relation to the divine calling. So I want us to bring out that spontaneity in the rest of the creation. And I think we can do this in a quasi-evangelical way. That is, I no longer bother to dump on the idea of dominion. I just want to say in context, you know, it's an idea that's uh, close to 3,000 years old, at least 2,500. Uh, it just wasn't foreseeable that human beings could become the big bully gods of the creation. We were much more threatened by other creatures than threatening of them except in some limited circumstances, like it's what went on with the cedars of Lebanon back then is not a pretty story. So there are bad ecological antecedents there too, but the problems were really different. Uh, and an unjust empire was the problem being faced right then and all modes of, of, of 
social oppressiveness and injustice uh, and ecological issues weren't at the fore. So I say, yeah, okay, just keep transcribing that dominion in context. The verse ends up, or the, the, or the sixth day ends up very climactically and in some detail doing what after announcing that that we're made in the humans are made male and female in the image of God, then it elaborates what that means, right? It's the climax of, of Genesis 1. And what is it? It's you humans get to be vegans just like all the other animals. That's it. You know, we get to eat certain seed-bearing uh, fruits of certain plants just like all the other mammals, the earth mammals do. That's that's elaborated, and and then God saw that all together, you know, it was really good. So if we just even look at these ancient texts a little more closely, you know, not not missing what's just hidden in plain sight, I think we see some clues for a much richer sense of of our dominion, uh, our stewardship. I come from another strand of theological thinking uh, where where what's first of all important is what all of us critters in our endless incredible difference actually share in common uh, and that the balances uh, the modes uh, of, of ecological care <laughs> within non-human communities, the modes of ecological care that ancient human communities exercise, never perfect, uh, but vastly wiser than what is, is going on now. Uh, and so I think we're at a time where we need to be open to a whole rich diversity of, of ecological wisdoms out of multiple yeah. traditions. Yeah. I, I think you really, uh, even from the start of that resonated really deeply with a lot of listeners in the sense that um, I think many listeners, myself, uh, as I articulate this included, would love to stop to move past the sort of bashing on um, theologies that may not work for us anymore. And so um, that was incredibly helpful in many senses of the word. Another term um, or idea that I would love for you to kind of pick up uh, in the few minutes we have left here is polydoxy. Um, because it runs counter, not counter, it's just uh, a helpful alternative, I think, than um, what many of us have been handed in terms of orthodoxy. Uh, so can you describe polydoxy and um, its roots, how it's helpful, uh, what you mean by it? Yeah, it's a term that uh, Laurel Schneider, the theologian, and I came up with, I believe, on an airplane taking off from a meeting in Chicago just as just as a new president, I think his name was Obama, uh, was landing and we, we were told, look, there's his airplane. So I kind of remember the moment that she and I were talking and the word polydoxy popped up about a project that we wanted to do together. Uh, and yes, you're right, it's juxtaposed to, to orthodoxy, uh, right teaching. It's not because we want to do unright teaching, but because we think that to do right teaching is is to to be pluralist uh, in our teaching to have uh, to have a polymorphous and, and rich sense of doctrinal uh, teaching of, of of the doxa of orthodoxy. I mean, polydoxy is a slightly risky word for folk who are still uh, identified as evangelical or orthodox because it it sounds too much like polytheism, perhaps. Uh, but that's not what it means. Uh, what it means is a multiplicity of teachings. Christian orthodoxy is constituted of an incredible multiplicity of teachings, and often terrible wars were fought, the worst war in European history, perhaps in human history, in terms of percentage of death, is the Thirty Years' War uh, between uh, Catholics and Protestants, 16th century, 17th, really, it's uh, inability to come to terms <laughs> with the many doctrines that we have. And so trying to solve that difference by, by slaughter uh, seems like that's something we're still willing uh, to attempt often enough. Um, 
in relation these days uh, to Muslims. So the, the polydoxy is a way of, of trying to the, theologically embrace, first of all, the multiplicity of Christian views, some of which we will affirm, some of which we will really debate, others which we won't even consider. Like one I don't even consider is the view that uh, only Christians have access to truth. Like, I don't have time for that view anymore. <laughs> Neither does the Bible, in which uh, the word Christian appears maybe once late. Um, so you have a whole lot of Hebrew and, uh, and Jewish groups, including the Jewish followers of Jesus uh, in the New Testament, working with a lot of different teachings that are very metaphoric, complex, rich, and there's a lot of debating, there's a lot of argument, uh, and a lot of it's not Christian right there, a lot of it's really Jewish, um, and on. So this is a way of saying we deal, hopefully respectfully, with a multiplicity of teachings, and we deal discerningly. We discern in the spirit not one teaching, uh, but in that one spirit, we discern the, the multiple manifestations of truth in the multiplicity of the rich creation, human and non-human. Yeah, I think that's what I found so helpful about the term is that it encompasses more of um, faith history, spiritual history, than the term orthodoxy or describes it maybe in a more um, precise way, which is uh, both comforting and encouraging and challenging all at the same time. I just have a few minutes left with you before um, I let you get out of here. And I want to ask one more overly large question. And it kind of sits behind almost every conversation I have on the podcast. Uh, the podcast started a couple months after um, the last presidential election. Uh, and there's just sort of this pervasive sense of um, what the hell do we do now? And folks have given a lot of wisdom on that uh, in the face of what appears to be a very discouraging time um, politically, environmentally, uh, ideologically, morally. I could heap words on over and over again to maybe not do it justice. But as you reflect on your work, the, the tools that we've picked up and played with, do you have any, any sense of direction or encouragement for a particularly tough time, uh, at least for the, the listeners in the United States? Well, so much of so much of the world is is lamenting what's going on in the United States and following our news sometimes more carefully than we. So yes, it's it's well that you introduce this time as a discouraging one. What seems crucial is that we not let it literally discourage us. That it is so crucial that we not lose courage. But courage isn't about you know machismo, optimism. Uh, courage from the French, right? Cour, heart. Courage is taking part. So it's a love resource, courage is. And so in love of each other, in love of this creation, in love of this gift of the world, uh, we can always, again, take heart. But yeah, that can sound like a lot of BS, uh, just way too general, given all the specific depredations that are going on and that are, are threatening uh, to go on. And then, you know, one day it's more alarming than the next. I have to get my news often from you know, Stephen Colbert because I can't bear the real thing. But here's what I think. Uh, we, have to, we have to distinguish Christian hope from optimism. I learned this first from Moltmann. Hope does not mean optimism. Optimism is a confidence that things will work themselves out. It's a confidence in progress. Very American. And it can be invigorating and bring about resilience. I, I think right now, thinking people are incapable of optimism. That's why it's crucial to help them realize hope is different. Hope arose in the Hebrew prophetic tradition in impossible situations. Situations that for the people suffering them were often much worse than what any of your viewers uh, have ever known or are likely to. Uh, things weren't worse for 
the earth as a whole, but things uh, were often in, in great distress in terms of, of defeat or exile or modes of systemic oppression in Babylon. A pope is always almost impossible. It is hope in the face of the impossible. It is the embrace of possibility in the face of what really does seem impossible. Uh, so there's an element of, of, of surprise and even of playfulness that we need now. And what does that mean? That means we have to be taking our communities more seriously than ever so that we have the support, the affection, uh, that we need the encouragement that we need and so that life on a daily basis is worth living. And in that matrix, we can keep strategizing in new ways, like how to particularly uh, plot uh, to stimulate a blue wave in the November election seems crucial to me. Uh, and I feel very sad that there's a certain amount of radical energy that just wastes itself because, you know, the Democratic Party isn't radical enough or it, it should be socialist. Yes, that's right. Uh, but if we actually want to move there, <laughs> A, we have to have, you know, a, a livable planet. And B, we need to be working, uh, working with and sometimes within the democratic system that we've got uh, and that just means working honestly, because we are inside of it, whatever else may be true. So we need to bring our outsider wisdom to bear. And that might mean that might mean very, very humbly uh, working on that next election to as so as to open space uh, for a whole other <laughs> Congress in which then some at least sanity can breathe and not for a moment forgetting that there are there are forthcoming uh, youthful waves of energy. We saw that in Bernie's support. We saw that with the amazing uh, Lakeland uh, students of the demonstration of amazing performances they did then uh, publicly and at the DC uh, event uh, turning mourning uh, itself into action that gives me hope so that there are there are waves of youthful energy uh, that can follow up on a blue wave uh, that we need to keep we need to never again just get complacent in case we get you know a democratic majority and can stop some of the worst craziness because there's not time and so for people to follow their concrete instincts politically, but also a lot of my students at the School of Theology are working on uh, organic farm skills, organic gardening skills, and uh, wanting to learn how to grow food and help their communities to do that, often church lots doing that, not just to provide uh, extra, extra uh, and healthy uh, nourishment for some stressed uh, communities, uh, but also to, to teach those skills, survival skills, for when uh, larger systems begin to break down, which they probably will because the, the climate crises are going to keep coming, I'm afraid. Uh, that's in the zone of real predictability now, just not the exact form of it. And the, the more there's the flooding, uh, and the more there are the droughts, um, and there's the burning, the overheating, uh, the more the more difficult it's going to be to grow enough food for a population that is still growing uh, much too quickly. Uh, and the more immigration there's going to be out of desperation, and the more inhospitality there's going to be towards the millions of immigrants. Uh, that will be on the way because of climate, the climate migrants. So we have a lot of challenges ahead. The thing to always remember is uh, our species usually did have ungodly challenges uh, and God didn't step in to fix most of those because that's not what God does, but often there was inspiration 
and portions of our species tuned into some wisdom and did a lot of a lot of shalom, a lot of tikkun, a lot of healing. And that can happen again. Of course, the fact that things are getting so bad is partly what can provoke the awakening. Indeed. Shouldn't shouldn't come to that, should it? But but we're here and that's the reality we have. So yeah, and I I appreciate that you're as I articulated before, um, your perspective and your spirituality and your theology gives us, I think, a sort of earnest hope that also um, isn't afraid to, like we said before, be playful. And so it holds all those things together uh, in a way that is particularly relevant, I think, in this particular moment. So I am grateful for that and for you um, walking around the sandbox, so to speak, and picking up a few tools for folks. Um, where would you say if um, we've hit a lot of different things in your work, where would you point people who um, have not read anything by you yet and they want to start to sort of dabble in some of your writing and your work? Definitely on the mystery, especially for folk coming from a Christian background. Yeah. Uh, if it's not coming yeah. from a Christian background, then starting actually with From a Broken Web, uh, my first book. Uh, where I was still finding theological voice might be a, a good way to start. But I think I think for anyone coming from a Christian uh, point of view on the mysteries is a really good introduction, or so I hear. And I think that uh, the book that is uh, going to come out this fall, uh, that, that'll be Columbia Press, uh, is actually going to be a, a not bad introductory text. Uh, it, it's called political theology of the earth. And the subtitle, if I can remember, <laughs> it's a long one, the subtitle of political theology of the earth is our planetary emergency and the struggle for a new public. Um, so the book's trying to help that struggle. It's a short book, I say proudly. And I think that it's, it's really quite accessible. So I, I hope it, it will be a, a good resource and maybe next year we can talk again about that book once it's out and about. Absolutely. Yep. I would love to. Well, thank you so much for the time and um, the tools and the ideas and exploring them uh, with me and with the listeners. I think they are going to love it. So deeply appreciative for that. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sam. I've loved the conversation. 